Welcome to The Returning Citizen. The Returning Citizen strives to help people coming out of prison and their families by sharing success stories, connecting available resources, and building supportive community. We want to remind our listeners that the U.S. has the highest rate of incarceration of any country on earth. Most of these folks return home as our neighbors, thousands per year in Detroit alone. Um, And we believe that everybody wins uh, when we help these returning citizens be successful. Um, I am joined today by my lovely co-host, Imani Mixon. Yeah, what's your name, though? Oh, my name is Jacob Smith. Uh, (laughs) And I'm here joined by Imani Mixon. Um, unfortunately, Eric Burgess, our uh, other faithful co-host, is unable to join us today. Was caught in uh, to a last-minute work uh, <laughs> situation yeah. that pulled him away. Um, however, he uh, sent us a few questions in advance, so he'll uh, his perspective and his voice will still be here present. And as always, he's here in spirit. For sure. And we are very grateful to have Aaron Kinzel today as our guest, our returning citizen. He is a professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Michigan Dearborn, and his areas of research expertise include corrections and public policy. He's also a consultant that has worked nationally on criminal justice reform, including contracts with the U.S. Department of Justice. Professor Kinzel's passion for these issues arose from growing up in a life of crime and being locked up in multiple juvenile detention facilities and spending more than half of a 19-year sentence in adult correctional facilities. And we really just invited you today to hear about your journey and learn about all the things that we think we know about. But, you know, it seems like you have a firsthand account. We want to know what kind of resources and obstacles people that are returning from prison or jail have been away um, bump into. So thank you so much for stopping by. And we're very excited to have you. Thank you, Imani. And thank you, Jacob, for inviting me. I'm excited to sit down and talk with both of you. Perfect. Thank you for being here. Um, I guess we can jump right in. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, we just want to remind everybody that uh, anytime we mention a program or event, uh, it's linked in the SoundCloud description as well as uh, on Facebook. And don't hesitate to reach out at podcast at thereturningcitizen.org. So Professor Kinzel. Just call me Aaron, bro. Aaron? (laughs) So Aaron, uh, you got into some pretty serious trouble. Absolutely. I think when you were 19 years old, is that? Well, that was the, uh, the fast track to the penitentiary, but I've been involved in the justice system in one way or another, probably the earliest um, contact with the CJ system was probably five years old, where I had my first uh, stop and frisk mm-hmm. from law enforcement, which is kind of crazy to hear like a five-year-old being stop and frisk. And, and where were you? Where were you when that happened? Uh, I was growing up in Monroe County. I was originally born in Toledo, Ohio, um, lived in the inner city for a long time with my mother, never knew my real father. My mother struggled in poverty uh, on social welfare her entire life. And we lived uh, in just a really small apartment um, in Whiteford Township, I believe it was. And just I was observing activity from other men that she was with, uh, one of whom was a cat burglar. I would uh, the easiest way to kind of describe it. And I watched him and also participated with him breaking into houses and doing different types of crime. So as a five-year-old kid, my first stop uh, in interaction with law enforcement was when uh, I broke into another apartment to steal toys from another child because mm-hmm. I was without and I had learned as a, as, a, as a kid, you want something, you need something, you take it. So I was stopped by cops at five years old, and I already had a criminal sophistication as a kid where 
Uh, I knew not to talk to the police as far as like give them any like real details about anything. So I was lying, saying I was not there. I was not the one that was involved in this. I know nothing. Right. So that's kind of scary looking back as a grown man now that I, you know, had that type of adversarial relationship with law enforcement at such a young age. Definitely. And how do you think that first interaction kind of influenced you as you moved throughout the world, like encountering police in that manner, you know, after committing a crime? How do you think that affected you? Well, as I go further on, like beyond the age of five and into my early teens, uh, my mother bounced around to different households and constantly went with different men who were involved in different types of criminal activity, particularly the narcotics and uh, firearms trades. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, kind of mimic that behavior. Uh, you know, as an academic today, there's uh, something called social learning theory from Bandura where you, you have people, individuals, particularly children, uh, who are just sponges and you have them around different types of social behavior, they begin to mimic uh, that behavior. Right. So as a kid, I started to realize that I had to become hyper masculine. I was like abused by different men that my mother was with, mm-hmm. whether I'm getting beaten or, uh, you know, someone's having a bad day because they're drunk or they're on drugs or whatever it is. And I, I learned to protect myself. I learned to become violent and solve a lot of my issues that I may have had in school with aggression and violence to protect myself. For sure. And it seems like I think in society we kind of reward specific language and behaviors without like nourishing whatever that other side is. So that's definitely a very worthy perspective to have. I, I don't know if I touched on that long. Like, I, I guess all those like things that I was exposed to created this really strong adversarial relationship with law enforcement. Right. So I seen um, men that my mother was with or other people or family members being taken off in the criminal justice system. So as a kid, you know, I was visiting people in jail. Uh, I was at card tables or, or bars listening to all these stories about prison or jail. So my whole life was kind of like a little mini college course and what corrections is all about. Wow. And so I'm hearing all these stories and, and it all comes back to that law enforcement are the bad guys. And, and now as a grown man, I know that's not true. There are certainly some bad apples that we have out there from a law enforcement perspective, but I think a vast majority of our law enforcement community wants to serve and protect the public, but we also as a society are not holding cops accountable when they go beyond whether it be misconduct or just criminality. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not going above and beyond to like stop these different infractions and different criminal procedures that cops are involved in when they're on the wrong side of the law. Right. And I noticed uh, in, in an article I was, I was reading, I think it was in the Huffington Post article, yeah. uh, you mentioned that in your work today that a piece of it is on the reform, you know, criminal justice reform side, but also yes. a piece of it is with mentorship and education, um, helping presumably children avoid um, a similar situation. Could you just speak to what role intervention at an early age can play or or kind of how you think about that? I think uh, intervention, particularly for youth, is probably the most pivotal aspect of criminal justice reform. If we don't stop kids on the front end before they get into the system, we're going to have mass incarceration just double and triple like it has over the last four decades. And I don't want to see four million people. I don't want to see eight million people locked up when, when my child becomes my age. That's just, you know, to me, ridiculous. So if we could divert some of the resources that we have, like particularly Michigan, for example, um, Michigan State Legislature Appropriations Committee puts out about roughly $2 billion annually for corrections budget. Mm-hmm. And, and the amount of money that we spend on higher education. So we've got the University of Michigan, Wayne State, Western Michigan, et cetera. All these public universities don't even get close to that amount of money. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying as a society that it's more important to incarcerate and um, 
you know, segregate individuals who are living in, very often living in poverty, coming from communities of color and, and are struggling just to get by instead of like giving them the resources that they need, whether it be K through 12 education, community development or higher education access. So I think if we can d- invest some of that money on the front end, not only are we going to have more safe neighborhoods, um, a greater um maybe a greater and better understanding with law enforcement, maybe build some strength and community understanding where cops are actually seen as leaders in the community because a lot of communities see them as like I did as a kid as adversarial, like they're taking away your mama, your brother, your whoever it may be. So let's invest in these communities. And I think if we catch kids early, like I mentioned with, with Bandora social learning, if we expose kids to mentorship, if we expose kids to opportunity and the value of an education, I think they're much more likely to be diverted from going into the juvenile justice system or even fast track into uh, county jail or penitentiaries. Right. And I really enjoy the idea of not necessarily just stopping like it wouldn't be just a reflexive like don't do that. But yeah, that support system that something that can somebody can actually just grow with and take them as they go. Can, can you speak to your personal experience with juvenile corrections? I mean, how, as, as a child going through theoretically that system yes. exists to, to do that, quote, quote. Right. How how did that actually impact you as a as a child going through? Um, so the difference, and a lot of people may or may not know this, juvenile justice as a whole, the whole premise is built upon a rehabilitative model, meaning that children, I think, as a society, we've kind of deemed as are redeemable just automatically for the most part, and we create a system to where there's treatment programs and a lot more uh, programming and, and things to help kids build on themselves. Whether or not it's perfect, that's a whole other conversation, but. The difference between uh, youth and adult penit- uh, adult prisons are just there to punish. Mm-hmm. They're all about uh, segregation, isolation, and control. So as a kid going into the juvenile justice system, I think my first time in the system, I was um, 15 years old. Uh, I was at school, struggling at home, uh, all the crazy shit that was going on as, as a kid. And I'm seeing, I brought all that garbage into the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I was disruptive. I was getting detention, expelled. I came into a basketball game one time at my school, um, high as hell on marijuana, and I had a confrontation with a teacher in which um, he got in my face and, and kind of pushed me a little bit, and my reaction to that was kind of like push him up against the wall and basically tell him, don't put your hands on me. Mm-hmm. And his response to that was calling the police. So I had two officers come to a game uh, again. Uh, as a child, when a man puts his hands on me, I get defensive automatically. That was kind of like ingrained in me as a child. So cop or not, two grown men put their hands on me as a 15-year-old telling me, you got to leave. And I'm like, whatever, I'm not I'm not going anywhere. Right. And that became uh, an assault. I, I attacked two of these officers. We, I think, looking back, it lasted for probably like 10 minutes, too. Um I think I got the best of them because they didn't want to hurt me, but I like hit these cops and eventually they subdued me, flipped me around, and then took me off to the juvenile detention center in Monroe, Michigan. And that was my first experience in the system, being locked up, isolated by myself. And it just sucks. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it other than that. As a kid, you don't really understand. I had no concept of like my legal rights or, or when am I coming home or anything like that. I was just kind of just pissed off and stuck there. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, I was let out very shortly thereafter because my mother had connections um, through crooked attorneys, I would call it, um, who were like on the payroll for the drug trade that her boyfriend uh, was involved in. And they kind of flipped that whole situation in which it was like, police. I was banged up, but like, honestly, I deserved it. Like mm-hmm. I created that whole incident, but 
they just kind of let me out. And that kind of gave me what I call this God complex in which that I felt like, well, I can do this mm. and nobody can touch me. So there's no accountability. I never had parents saying, don't go out do drugs, don't go commit violence, don't do this. It was kind of like a free-for-all for me. So that first time I think was an epiphany for me in a negative way to where I can do whatever the hell I want and there's no accountability. And it just kept getting progressively worse and worse. Mm. Definitely. So then to go from that first incident to sort of the longer stint, yeah. what happened in between then or like what popped off for that to happen the second time? So after the age of 15, uh, again, that was kind of the beginning of the real heavier stuff. I started becoming involved with um, one of my mother's boyfriends who was selling narcotics and firearms through two different major counties. Mm-hmm. And it was like some real serious um activity that I was just like getting involved in. For the longest time, I hated people who were drug addicts and using drugs. And then I got to a point to where, and it's scary, where I became like them. I became violent. I became addicted to different uh, types of narcotics. And I started selling. I became that which I hated as a child from Mm -hmm. the abuse that I was subjected to. And I was Mm -hmm. a powerless kid. So I kind of flipped it around in a way that now I felt empowered, where I was somewhat in control of my life, to where I was able to um, you know, kind of like just put myself out there and not be harmed. So I started doing drugs heavily, selling drugs all over the county. I started recruiting other kids. I was never involved in a gang per se, like the Bloods, Crips, uh, anything like that. But like I created small gangs in my neighborhood, whether it was in the inner city or rural America, where I had small groups of other teenagers and even some adults selling drugs or getting rid of uh, firearms for me. And that type of behavior was rewarded. Mm-hmm. By like, you know, my mother and stepfather who were like, wow, this good job, Aaron. Like, oh, how much dope you sell today? And, you know, oh, you got some new. I bring home some guns. I got a new shotgun or this old like Civil War pistol is probably worth a couple grand. And they're like excited mm-hmm. that I'm out doing crazy stuff. So mm-hmm. I was in and out the juvenile system a couple other times for a stolen vehicle, another couple other assault charges. And then the age of 18, fast track, um, I was strung out on drugs. I was getting suicidal. My my mother and my stepfather had gone from being like kind of like big time drug dealers to hardcore addicts. Mm. Mm. They became addicted to crack cocaine and other pills and, and like went on this downward spiral where the criminal enterprise had started to fizzle out. And they were just hardcore addicts robbing um, people in the community just to get high. Mm-hmm. And as crazy and as violent as it was as a kid that wasn't okay with me for some reason. It kind of like there was this aha moment in my head. Like I'm not going to go rob little old ladies or kick someone's door in who's a working individual just to get high on dope. And to me, there was kind of like this diverging path where I kind of went away from them and they were on this whole dope kick. So I tried to get away from them, but my not so bright youth, um, I had a firearm with me and still had some drugs as I was trying to like, uh, isolate myself from that. I went out East and that time I was on, um, I got like a narcotics charge as a juvenile. And that's another problem with our system where we're charging 16 to 17 year olds as adult Michigan, um, the age of, you know, going able to go into the adults is 17. Mm-hmm. So we have 17 year old children in adult prisons, which and is just worse in other parts of the. Absolutely. Country, yeah. So like I was just last night on Netflix recently did that Khalif Browder series that wow. was out and, yeah. and Khalif was 16 and this poor kid is going into one of the most notorious county jails in the nation, Rikers Island. And, and Khalif reminds me a lot of myself. Like he, he was just a kid who was, you know, in, in a weird situation. He fought in the system and, and he kept getting put in solitary, mm-hmm. struggling. So 
I went out east. Uh, I long story short, I get pulled over by law enforcement. I'm on the run. I, I'm on probation at this time for this drug charge in Michigan. And uh, I, I don't know how to say this other than like um, I say it real calmly and, and kind of like non-emotional. But like going back, I really feel bad for what happened, but I can't change the past. It, what it is it is. So I'm sitting in my car. I get pulled over by a trooper. He comes up on the left of me and He's acting real weird. I, I, this, I'm in a stolen vehicle. I got my girlfriend sitting next to me. I'm 18 years old at this time. I got a, a loaded firearm on me, drugs, and I'm freaking out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know this is not going to happen well. I see the cop is fidgeting. He's getting weird. I'm watching his body movements, his eyes, and, and he's, he's nervous. So um, I'm getting more nervous. And he starts to step away a little bit, and I, I notice he starts putting his hand towards the side. And within a split second, Without kind of like any aforethought or anything, I pull my firearm and fire out the window. Cop goes down. And then within seconds, out of the right corner of my eye from the rear side of the other vehicle, another um, unclothed, I found out later, it was a police officer, but he was unclothed, not unclothed, but like <laughs> not wearing uniform. Yeah. Um, he starts firing uh, a nine millimeter Beretta in the back of my car trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. And he fires 15 rounds going into... Um, you know, the dash blew out the back windshield towards the gas tank. When I go back in that moment in time, it's kind of like the matrix where everything slowed down. And I don't say this to be like tough or, or, or arrogant or whatever. Like I was not scared. I was a wacko kid. I've been shot at before. I've been in shootouts. I was just kind of like frozen in time. Like I screwed up. Um, my girlfriend's freaking out. I can't hear because of all the gunfire. Somehow. I don't know how to this day. I don't have any bullets in me later on. Uh, forensics did examinations on that vehicle and like where I am now in my seat there was like three bullet holes Mm. in the driver's seat that never somehow went through but there was bullets that lodged in like the dash of the radio the speedometer stuff like that and to this day they don't know how the hell I'm not dead and your girlfriend was okay too and my girlfriend was okay too she was freaking out and like Mm. like, flailing and and so all this happens all within like I think it was like five seconds because I've got the video footage uh, of the actual stop and all this happens within five seconds. So I stop, put the car in drive, and I go off on this high-speed chase. And I'm going through rural Maine uh, in the middle of nowhere, heading towards Canada, trying to get the hell away from uh, this situation. And I end up going to a wooded area. They couldn't catch up to me. I was driving very recklessly in the community. I could have killed somebody. I'm just a wacko kid going back on that now. I, I, I really like I just it's to me how I am today and how I was then as a, as a youth is just so much night and day. Um, they put out a spike mat. They ended up um, blowing out, not blowing out the front tires like you see in the movies, but it slowly deflates the front tires to where they lose pressure. And so I'm rim roasting and the front tires are sparking and I jump this ditch into a potato field. I'm really close to Canada, and me and my girl jump out of the vehicle, and we're on the run. So we're out running in the woods, and I'm thinking I'm Rambo trying to hide from um, law enforcement. Later, I found out that there was over 100 law enforcement officials searching for myself and my girlfriend, which included local state police. Um, They brought in federal and U.S. marshals. Uh, Military were there. They had four-wheelers, helicopters, dogs everything looking for us 
And fortunately for me, growing up in in the woods, I knew a little bit about hunting and, and tracking with animals. So I'm rubbing mud on myself. I'm pissing on a tree over here, and then I'm going in the opposite direction. So animals are going one way, getting my scent, and I'm rubbing up on trees, and then you know I'm going the opposite way. Uh, the next day was kind of like my decision point, which really is what got me into the system where my girlfriend was really tired and she went out to a country road and I told her like, look, they are still looking for us. This is like a manhunt now. Like she didn't really understand the severity of what was going on. She was just a teenager too, but she's never been in something like this before. Uh, I've been chased by the cops before. To me, this was like really like something that was normal, as crazy as that sounds where so she goes up towards the road. I run after her. an unmarked cruiser rolls up, jumps out of the vehicle, probably like 15, 20 feet away from me, pulls out a shotgun and has got me and my girlfriend in his sights. Mm. And I still got a loaded firearm in my pocket. And now mm. I'm at the moment of what am I going to do? Fortunately, I made the right decision and I didn't pull my gun. Mm-hmm. I just put my hands up and they took me into custody. And I actually stood there. Um, handcuffed for probably over a half hour and this wasn't the best law enforcement tactics on their part i had a loaded gun in my hand not my hand but in my pocket while i was handcuffed for over a half hour no Mm -hmm. one ever patted me down Mm -hmm. and that's what brought me off to the county jail and then i'm facing an 18 year old kid i'm facing the attempted murder of a state uh trooper um i'm facing life in prison because even though um to backtrack the officer was not shot or harmed thankfully um Nobody there, myself, my girlfriend, either officer was harmed during this whole crazy incident. There were bullet holes all over the place, but uh, at the scene anyway, but nobody was harmed. So that's great. But regardless of that, um, any violent act like that towards a law enforcement official was a lifeable offense. Mm. And, so and I'm fighting you, for my life. And you ended up with eight, eight felonies, correct? Yeah. So they stacked up eight felonies. So attempted murder was the main charge that they were going for, which held the life possibility. And then seven other felonies on top of that, like passing a roadblock, felon in possession of a firearm, um, all these other different, you know, minimal charges in my eyes compared to, you know, the life offense. So I'm sitting in the county jail like a lot of people, like Khalif, um, I don't have money for bail. I'm sitting there. I'm poor. I, I don't got no money. And my drug addict family, they're certainly not, you know, shelling out any cash to, like, help me get, like, bond or anything. I think I had, like, a $50,000 surety, and 10% of that would have been, like, five grand. But still, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm sitting there. I had a public defender initially. Um, and, and no offense to this guy that was there he was probably like my age now fresh out of law school he had no clue he's never even had a a criminal trial let alone a capital case like mine and i just i was screwed so i started reading up on the law and and learning about grievances and i was probably not the best inmate at the county jail i was mean i was aggressive i caused a lot of problems at that facility but at the same time i i kind of had like this this duality to what i was doing i was still this mean aggressive kid who was violent but I was also fighting for my life too. I was trying to use my intellect to kind of like learn about my case, the law and fight my conditions of confinement and also my case. In the end, it didn't work out for me. I ended up getting a a 19 year prison sentence. By then I had spent a year and a half in the County jail. Uh, So now I'm a 19 year old kid going off to the penitentiary. And while I was in the County, like Khalif, like I was in solitary multiple times. And that is just something that nationally we need to really 
look at as a society of how damaging that is, how detrimental it is, mm-hmm. particularly to people with mental health issues. Normal people go into solitary confinement. They develop mental health issues mm-hmm. being locked up 23 hours a day or 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody goes crazy. How you deal with it uh, depends on the person. I became much more violent. Uh, if you watch the the video with Khalif Browder, he became more violent also being locked up for nearly three years. And then I think almost half of that was in solitary as well. And then the poor kid comes home. He's so screwed up. He ends up killing himself mm-hmm. because of just the trauma of, of living that experience. So I was the same way. Uh, I think being violent helped me kind of like navigate my way through the system as far as like taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. But it fucked me up. I don't know how else to say it. Like I, it made me. Um, a monster in, in some aspects. I survived in prison, but like it made me turn into something I really didn't like. Definitely. And I think that that still speaks back to that support that we talked about that everybody needs no matter where they are as a child and just growing up and learning how to be a person. And then on the other end of that. So, you know, once you are locked up and you serve your time and you're released into society, how do you go about finding the support that you need, whether it be emotional, financial, professional like, what was that process like for you? That was extremely difficult. So um, I did nearly 10 years. So uh, I was actually very fortunate where I got paroled after half of my sentence. So I did a little half, a little more than half of a 19-year bid. So I went in 18. I came out 28. Mm-hmm. And going back in the community was, was very scary. I don't know how else to say it. Like, honestly, like, I was more scared coming home. Than like the crazy shit that I did as a kid and all the violence and all that other stuff that would be really weird for other people. That was normal to me. That was a scary part mm-hmm. was coming home to something that was not necessarily new, but it was unfamiliar. I, I would like there's so much time that had passed. So I get home and the new hotness is those like razor flip phones. I don't know if you guys yeah. remember those from like 2007. <laughs> yeah. I had this little gold razor flip phone and I was like, oh, my God, like I've got magic in my hand. I remember as a kid, I as a dope dealer, I had the little beeper and that was just like magic. And what, now, what year did you get up? I got it in 2007. So okay. it was just the era where, yeah. you know, we had the flip phones, but the. You know, I, I think I had internet capability, which was like 3G on this phone. Like you push a button and then five minutes later, you might be able to Google something. But right. it was amazing to me, but also extremely difficult for me because I was so far behind. Like I was using a Commodore or Apple computer in the yeah. penitentiary. That's kind of like basic word functionality if mm-hmm. I even got access to that on rare occasions. So I'm trying to navigate society and technology and also deal with my own personal demons from from being in the system so long. And not just the system, but even before I got incarcerated, I was screwed up. Mm. So I didn't realize how messed up I was until I, I came home and, and tried to acclimate back into society. Um, to touch on what you're saying, like uh, initially I would have not got any I, – um, I couldn't get housing. As a convicted felon, it's extremely rare that you, you can't get public housing more often than not. You're, and, and when people do background checks or, or credit checks, your, your record comes up. Right. Who wants to you know rent to someone who has a record? That there's this huge stigma surrounding that. So I'll be honest, like I had a family member that kind of illegally rented a place in their name and and just kind of let me stay there. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing that kind of like I had a bit of privilege in that to where otherwise I would have been on the streets right. and going back probably. So that was one thing that helped me. Um, no money when I came out. I didn't have an identification. I had to like go through all these hoops and, and many state agencies do not give um, release prisoners uh, an ID, which is total bullshit. Mm. It's like, I, in my opinion, it's purposeful 
discriminatory practice where they're making it even harder for you to to get out because everything you do you need an id right to walk into some government buildings you need to have an id right which is just ridiculous and if you, they know that they identify you and lock you up they know you're social they know everything they probably got your blood type too but they can't rubber stamp a little plastic id to get you out i think that's horrific so getting all that took a while i didn't have a driver's license um i had decided while i was inside i took one college course just before i got out of prison and that kind of changed my life in a way to where i was like this is what i'm gonna do this is probably my only opportunity in life so i enrolled after um like three or four months in a community college Mm -hmm. i was fortunate again that i had family members that were basically just paying for my rent giving me money for my cell phone bill and everything uh and just food and at that time, I was not eligible for food stamps because the law was set up where you had to have a minor child at that time wow. to get food stamps. So I was struggling. Right. So it seems like things kind of stacked up against you even more yeah. after just because society wasn't ready to welcome you back yet. Absolutely. Um, and then so specifically, I know we talked about how you enrolled in school. How did you go from that mindset to, you know, entering the professional world? And what was that process like? Um. Same thing, I think, really scary. Like, I wasn't used to being around people, um, particularly, like, women. That was really difficult for me. At that time, when I just got home, I was married, um, and I struggled uh, with my relationship with my wife because of, like, all this inner demons and stuff that I had going on. I was very withdrawn. She didn't really understand why there was times I didn't want to talk. I get into social situations, was nervous. I get around a lot of people. I get nervous, Mm -hmm. anxious. Um, So going into a community college where there's, like, a room full of 30, 40 students and there's a campus and a lot of people was really hard for me mm-hmm. just from a social perspective. Um, but what I did to kind of tackle that is, is I'm very stubborn to where I just kind of like put my, I immersed myself and I just forced myself, even though I was very uncomfortable, I forced myself to do it. And I did really well in the beginning, but like as soon as I got there, I was applying for jobs I could never find employment mm. when I uh, for many of you um, who come out of the system, just any felony, even a misdemeanor. You got to like disclose that on a lot of job applications. And that is mm-hmm. an almost automatic, um, you know, there's two boxes for employment. There's the trash for, for people with records. And then there's the other file where we like maybe we'll, you know, give you a call. Right. And there's been all kinds of studies that show that where uh, there's a lot of human resource companies that have done research where I believe it's up to 90% of people with records. Roughly, you know, they're just throwing that away in reality. So I'm struggling to find employment, can't get a job. So I just keep banging out through school um, and going into um, this like business program at the community college. I'm curious if there was just taking a quick step back. um, And I'd like to actually explore what you're just talking about a little bit more too. But um, I think a lot of people in the situation that you're describing, given your background up to that point, uh, might have turned back to crime. Oh, absolutely. Was, was there an inflection point for you when you decided, either in prison or once you got out, that you weren't going to turn back to crime? And what what would you attribute to that kind of change of mindset? Mm. I think, like, and I'll be honest, like when I was in the penitentiary, I was doing some dirt. I was doing some illegal things that were probably on a felony basis. I'm not going to go into detail. But I think towards the end, I came to the conclusion that, and and, and a lot of that, the, the ironic um, people that, were helping me kind of get away from this criminal mindset were some of the lifers in the penitentiary. Guys that have been down 20, 30, 40 years who've probably committed some of the most serious offenses, some of which would be murder. These guys instilled in me um, the power of, of mentorship, what it's really like to be a man in society, 
to take care of your kids, take care of your community, and take care of yourself. Um, and they taught me that if, if I don't get an education and apply myself, I'm nothing. And then I'm just going to be basically life on the installment plan like a lot of these men and women who just cycle in and out of the system. So I think just before I was released, I made a conscious epiphany where I'm like, I'm not going to go back into this. And actually, upon my initial release, I had family members who were still involved in the game, per se, um, that tried to draw me back in because they knew I was a good drug dealer. I could go you know, hustle dope on the streets or, or, or go do crazy violent stuff. But I changed. I'd grown up. I where I'm just like, I'm done with all this stupid stuff. I, I mean, I could go get some quick money, but is is me going after 500 bucks or $1,000, is that worth five years of my life? I had to kind of do like a return on investment analysis in my brain. Like, <laughs> do I want to go get this quick money? But do I want to spend some more time in the penitentiary? And I was on parole too. So I think that was kind of like, um, I think most people, parole or probation is not really a deterrent. But for me, it was. Mm-hmm. I wanted nothing to do with the penitentiary system. So... I think that was my moment of aha. And plus, like, my family that was doing drugs and, and, and crime when I was younger, they weren't supporting me in prison. The people that were supporting me were, like, my grandfather, who's uh, 90 years old now. He's a uh, disabled veteran. He's one of the last World War II vets. He's a man to me. He's an honorable man who served his country. He worked for 35 years in the old Jeep plant out in Toledo, which is now owned by Chrysler. Um, he taught me. A lot about, you know, also, what is it like to be a man, be a contributing member to society? Mm-hmm. And do you, uh, so back to kind of the struggle to find a job and, and get on your feet without being provided with, with resources coming out of uh, prison. Do you have, looking back, do you have advice for other folks? A uh, big, big thing that we focus on here is to um, help other folks what are the practical uh, avoid things? some of these obstacles. Yeah. Do you have practical tips for folks uh. transitioning out of prison to either find gainful employment or... Uh, find mentorship or or any of the things that you're describing? It's really hard because you can't really like blanket brush a lot of things. I think a lot of people think that there's like a secret sauce. I think everybody is very unique in their needs as an individual, whether their age coming out, their gender, whatever it may be, what the community they go back into. But I guess from just a basic blanket brush perspective, you need to be authentic with people. Filling out job applications ain't going to get you shit. Even if you're like not having a criminal history, like nowadays, the, the, the struggle that we have with the, the deinstitutionalization of so many different industries and so many things getting sent overseas where you got to be a unique go-getter out there. You got to be up in people's face and show uh, a work ethic. Mm-hmm. So I tell people um, who are coming home or when I do workshops in prison, like you got to um, brand yourself. You got to market yourself as that go-getter who wants to work and, and and don't be scared to go out and volunteer your time. I think with people coming home who have records, I think the most easiest pathway to get an employment is vocational or construction trades or, or, or culinary, you know, like workshop um, work, warehouses, uh, restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. These are ch- places where you can kind of like show a work ethic, volunteer to come in and say, let me work for like a couple, three hours. See how I do. And maybe you'll get someone to give you an opportunity. But filling out job applications is a waste of time, I think. And another big thing I tell formers, being people who've been inside, you need to have an entrepreneurial spirit. When you brand yourself, you need to come up with really great ideas to where you can hustle legitimately out on the streets. Um, I know a lot of drug dealers, myself being one as a kid, I could take $50 and turn it into 500 Mm -hmm. over a weekend, easy as hell. So people need to have that same mindset, that go-getter attitude, that communication skills, that um, that finesse 
but use it, use those illegitimate skills that they had from their past, but use it in a legitimate marketplace. That's my advice to them for just like a, a blanket brush. But again, everybody is very unique in their needs as an individual coming home. That's great. And just quick plug. I, so first of all, uh, I recommend that folks follow uh, The Returning Citizen on Facebook. Uh, but more importantly, um, our friend Anna Cohn, who's been on a previous episode, she does a Facebook page and, and some other things. Uh, it's called Chowline, C-I-A-O. Okay. And she's constantly posting about different programs uh, in the Detroit area for uh, whether it's employers that are open to hiring returning citizens. It's a lot of, like you said, culinary and vocational uh, training programs and things like that. The urban farming stuff in urban Detroit farming, is just phenomenal, 100%. too. And that's a great way to get farmers out there and get that work ethic and also give back to the community. Mm-hmm. Help a lot of uh, people that are just struggling to get fresh produce in, you know, in the city of Detroit. And, so. and if you're interested in learning more about those things, please reach out to us and, and ask because we can provide – we can point you towards some of those resources. Great. Definitely. Um, I'm still um, kind of stuck on – I feel like your story is very representative of a lot of young men that I know or who I've encountered where they identify violence and anger as power. Absolutely. And it seems like you've found ways to turn that around. So I'm just curious, what is your source of power now? Um, so definitely, I think probably like going back to my early childhood, I felt very powerless which was really something that I found really made me more hyper-masculine, aggressive, and violent. Those were ways that I found that I was able to kind of like artificially create power Mm -hmm. in my life because I felt so powerless and out of control as a child being subjected to abuse and in really crazy situations where I'm seeing murders or I'm seeing people violently attacked or shooting, all this crazy stuff in the community. Um, I think my power now comes from a not so dark place anymore i think my power now is i empower myself through helping others i think that's been a big paradigm shift for me instead of taking from my community i'm empowered by helping my community i did a lot of damage when i was a young man a lot of damage and the thing is i think it's a kind of a cross between nature versus nurture i call it where a lot of people think of themselves as victims. You know, I've been brought in the system and I went through all this. Well, yeah, that's true. That's only part of the equation, though. Right. If you, you struggled and you you didn't have, you know, what you needed as a kid and your parents were living about, I get that. I totally understand environment. It's a huge impact on how. We, but there's also nature and who you are and what decisions that you, you decide to make. So I'm empowered by helping others. I, I want to show them you know, there's a different pathway. I was one of the most violent people. I almost killed someone. Uh, really nasty kid, teenager, even young man in the prison system. But what I was able to do is to change that. And I changed through mentorship. I changed through actual interactions and positive community. So I'm in, uh, you know, in college, I'm around people in, in politics and policy. I'm around positive influences. And like, I go back to the social learning there with Bandura. Now that's starting to change me. Even as a, as an adult, I'm not a kid soaking up stuff really rapidly. Right. But as a grown man, I'm slowly starting to absorb these things and it's changing my perspective on how I can do things and I'm empowered by helping instead of hurting. Got it. And I, I wanted to ask you, and I'm not sure necessarily the best way to, to frame this, so I'm going to give it a go and yep. uh, just take it as you will. But um, I think in, in criminal justice reform circles, there's a lot of talk of, uh, I think, um, nonviolent crime and particularly nonviolent drug crimes get a lot of attention yes. uh, today. Um, and I feel like what I'm, I'm personally fascinated by uh, the fact that violent crime and violent you know, uh, offenders often seem to be kind of left out of that loop. I think part yes. of it may be because it's easier for society to maybe empathize with 
uh, nonviolent crimes or crimes that they could people could see themselves potentially committing or something like yes. that. Um, given your violent past, yeah. Um, what do you feel? What do you feel about about that um, in general? But also uh, from a redemption standpoint, um, how do you how do you feel uh, society should be thinking about redemption for for violent criminals? Okay, you, you got a lot of stuff there. Let me try. That. <laughs> um, so first and foremost, um, the fact of the matter is, regardless violent or nonviolent, ninety five percent of people approximately are coming home at some point. So the question now becomes, who do you want coming home? Do you want someone who's coming home, who's pissed off, has no job skills, who's angry, who has violent tendencies like myself as a young man? Or do you want someone who has the capacity and the tools to transform themselves? So that becomes a big question for me is, you know, how, who, how do we define redemption? Um, I think we definitely look at um, like the war on drugs, for example, which I think is a disaster. And, and like when I teach my classes at the University of Michigan, I will go on tangents for hours about, you know, the disastrous consequences of the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and even like as we're trying to dismantle mass incarceration and we have this focus on nonviolent drug offenders, I think it's honestly um, we're, we're looking in the wrong direction. So I would be much more worried about from a personal and professional perspective, we need to invest much more money in rehabilitating people with violent crimes. Honestly, because if someone is there for, uh, you know, let's say a, a couple kilos of cocaine, for example, um, the big thing with white boy Rick here, where he has one of the longest, the longest serving juvenile life for 29 years. And he's down in Florida now. Right. He got parole, but he's got to sit down there for a couple years before he comes home. He had, you know, under that 650 lifer law, I think it's like just like Eric, nonviolent crime. But like, I don't know if like us investing resources in someone like that is really that necessary. You know, they were just like trying to do a hustle. Me, I was a little different. My dope trade where I was out enforcing and being very violent on, you know, on top of that. So sometimes there's a crossover between the nonviolent drug possession or dealing where there's also a really violent component as well. Mm -hmm. But if we were to invest more resources for people um, who are, you know, an attempted murderer like myself or, or uh, you know, murders or, or, or even uh, which is a big problem. This is one of my pet peeves is, is sex crimes. I think we should much be harsher on sex crimes, but at the same time, Let's not just let these people out with no supervision. They need treatment. They need programming. They need things and tools to try to help them not reoffend again. So to me, I'm, you know, I'm a father now too. I have a six year old baby girl who I love more than anything. God mm -hmm. forbid everything happens to that little sweetheart. Mm -hmm. But like, I would rather invest my tax money as a citizen to where let's focus on these violent offenders. Let's give them the tools that they need to help redeem themselves i think most people have the propensity for redemption but they lack the tools they lack the financial resources they're they're kind of they don't have a compass they're kind of just thrown out on the streets and here go back to the same neighborhood where you came from good luck without so, any support without resources. any support whatsoever yeah. so even myself like i thought about going back into crime at some time but i had that support to help me really make that decision for me in a sense to where I had a different pathway. And I think there's resources out there that a lot of people are not familiar with. And as a society, we need to reinvest more in looking at, um, we need to lock up people who were afraid of more. Certainly the violent crimes, we need to be serious and, and tough on that. But we also need when the people come home, what are things that we can do to help protect society and help them better themselves? Absolutely. And and you said something interesting, which was it, it depends on how we define redemption. Yes. Um, Eric wanted us to ask um, 
basically is in your opinion is redemption is redemption self-defined or is redemption uh public you know defined by the public um and i suppose just in your own experience did did you have to find redemption within yourself before you could even turn to finding redemption from the community i think i found a lot of redemption in myself but then after a while people started to observe my work ethic. People started to see that redemptive quality that I instilled within myself initially, because I think, I don't know from a societal perspective, I think most people, including the stigma of incarceration, just as, as, as a matter of fact, like most people think redemption is not possible. I think, you know, I think on average, most people, if you were to interview like, you know, a sample of, of the U S most people would say, well, depending on the severity too, like oh, they're unredeemable. So I think it's more individually defined in redemption. But when, I built on myself and did things to redeem myself and my community. Prime example would be um, the position I'm in now as a professor at the University of Michigan. So my boss, uh, I'm going to plug him real quick, Judge Donald Shelton in our criminology and criminal justice program at the University of Michigan Dearborn. Um, when I first met him and had a conversation with him and where I'm kind of like, I came out of the convict closet per se, where I'm starting to talk about my record post uh, parole. He's seen my work ethic. He's seen a previous work history to where he's like, and he's dealt with probably thousands of really violent offenders over the years. And what he's seen in me was a spark and spirit to where I have redeemed myself. So here's a judge who for almost a quarter of a century was sitting in Washington County's bench, locking up people, seeing the worst of the worst and seeing people cycling in and out of the system. He's seen redemptive qualities in me and he and others I've come across with that have really got to know me and where I've been able to market myself and put myself out there in a way that I am redeemed. I'm showing it. I'm doing it in the community. I'm doing the work. I'm not just like some smoke and mirror show. I'm out there doing stuff uh, to better not just myself but my community. He gave me an opportunity. So I think that's the part where we've got to kind of overcome is that I think more stories like my own, not to toot my own horn, but like guys like Eric and, and other people that you may have interviewed – we're um we're humans. I'm not a convict. Mm-hmm. I'm not an ex-con. I'm not. A, I'm a human. I made some really bad mistakes. Yes, but I've also done some really incredible things. Given the short period of time I've been home, when people have looked beyond that stigma and given me an opportunity, and I repay that through and that's a criminal thing too, like loyalty, respect. Mm-hmm. Like I will do anything for my boss. I, I do all kinds of different things above and beyond my job description out of respect for him. It's a mutual respect. Definitely. And I'm still curious about um, how you find a balance between your past and present. Because on the outside looking in, somebody will be like, you know, how is he a professor? Yeah. But from the inside, I'm wondering, like, what parts of academia are inviting to you? Yeah. And, you know, what kind of community have you built there? It's It's been a long process like I I, I kind of left off where I was in the community college so like I went from community college less than two years got my associates went into a four-year university got my bachelor's in less than a year and then I was a part of a, um, United States Department of Education McNair program which kind of encourages graduate school it's actually paid for by the federal government mm-hmm. and so they gave me these extra classes to kind of encourage me towards that graduate pathway so now three years out I have a bachelor's degree nobody will hire me I can't get a job mm-hmm. Um, I go off to the University of Michigan, work on my master's degree. Now I'm at what I call a really unique moment in time, the Mayan apocalypse. If you guys remember that back in 2012 around the winter solstice, (laughs) that's almost six years I've been home now. 
I'm still on parole. Nobody will give me work. I have three degrees, all of which with honors and a master's from U of M. Nobody will hire me. Mm. And I've literally tried thousands and thousands of places. And just uh, at that time, I was enrolled in a doctorate program at Western Michigan University. And I was given an opportunity by a faculty member who knew my background. And for the first time, I was forthcoming on my application. I always have checked the box, but nobody really asked up until um, where I got into this doctorate. I, in my personal statement, I was like, look, I want to do research. And at that time, I never thought I'd be a professor or an academic. I was thinking about more like federal government service where I wanted to learn more about the carceral state and what are policy things that I could change. And this faculty member, Dr. Angela Moe, who, who I love dearly, she gave me an opportunity where she's like, why don't you just come teach for us? I'm like, what? She's like, well, I'm going on sabbatical. Why don't you teach one of my classes while I'm gone? And I'm wow. just like, whoa. Uh, so then I started teaching there and then I taught there for three years. And now I'm at this point where I, I've got three years of experience at Western. I've been teaching at U of M for, for over two years now. I've kind of like created a paradigm for myself where I, I have a little bit of both worlds. Um, I call it theory and practice in which like I, I've done the dirt on a practical side. I know everything there is about crime. Right. I'm not doing it, like fluff myself again, but like, I, I don't need to read a book about criminology or, or, or anything like that. I, I lived it since I was a child. Mm -hmm. So now I'm looking at other scholarly works and looking at other research and how are ways that from my practical experiences, how can I blend those worlds together? And I think that's what makes me unique. And I'm not unique in that because there are other academics nationwide. There's this group called uh, Convict Criminology, um, which is uh, hosted by the American Society of Criminology, of which um, one of my colleagues um, and I are going to be presenting some academic papers on, you know, the mental health effects of incarceration and a dissertation that I'm doing right now at the end of my program at U of M, uh, Convict Pedagogy, in which I look at different learning aspects uh, from that insider perspective. What's it like to learn? What are the positive elements of incarceration? Not just mm -hmm. all the bad bullshit that we hear about 99% of the time, but what's that little unique thing? What helped me and some other academics who uh, have spent years in prison, but not just academics, Just Leadership USA is another um, organization I'm affiliated with. These are leaders across the U.S. who are doing great work, who are formerly incarcerated. There's a guy uh, I know, he's a director of an ACLU project, American Civil Liberties Union. Other people are just working in community, running nonprofits. They they have different uh, corporate uh, connections. People, we never put the, the lens on people who are doing great things in the community. So my academic thing is like, I'm completely for my, my students. First day they come in class with me, they're hearing my whole story. You know, what is it I'm doing in the system? How can we change it? What are the problems? And the criminal justice system's not broken. It's actually doing exactly what it was designed to do, which is to oppress different communities, right. oppress people in poverty, people of color. And, and we need to look at ways as a society, how can we force politicians and the corporations to let's let's be smart on crime instead of tough on crime? Definitely. And I think I just have one more question. Yeah. Um, speaking to that oppression, do you have any advice for people who have been incarcerated or have come from maybe not the best circumstances for seeking higher education or employment or whatever that next thing is for yeah. them? The, again, I think beyond just filling out that application, they got to be they got to put a face to everything. They need to go out and mingle with people. They need to get to know people and they have to demonstrate that they want this more than the next person because 
Um, and I can't remember uh, the name of this woman that was recently in the news. There's a big Huffington Post article about where she did um, 20 years for a really violent crime, something involving her child. But like while she was incarcerated, um, she re- redeemed herself as a published scholar. She got, you know, all these programs and she was like led into Harvard University. But then like it was rescinded at the last minute by some of the higher up administration saying, well, you didn't kind of disclose exactly what, you know, may or may not have been on there. So my advice to people is that I've gotten rejections, too. You know, I'm not going to put some universities on blast, but like there's universities that told me to go fuck myself Mm. basically because of my background. So my thing is to others, like, don't let that deter you from going forward. So I think that woman got into uh, New York University. She's doing a great program. I got rejected from other universities and I ended up landing in a job where now I'm a faculty member, like a never in a million years where I thought that happened. So be persistent, be authentic, be open about your background. Don't hide it. Like when I first came home, I was like in the convict closet for six years. I would not talk. I thought people would give me a chance. And in fact, I've gotten more opportunities by being more public and open about my background than I ever would have thought. I think people, have seen who I am as an individual and, and, and look beyond my background by getting to know me individually. And it sounds like, so perseverance and, and authenticity, it sounds like also uh, opportunity only yes. helps if you're ready for it. Absolutely. So they say like luck is where opportunity meets preparation or something like that. But yes, that's I, really it, it sounds like some, steal that from you. <laughs> I, I didn't make it up. Okay. <laughs> so, something that, that you just touched on there, though, is that just you, you have to be ready for opportunity. Opportunity yes. can come when you're not expecting it. So yes. putting yourself in the best position to, to take advantage of opportunity if, and when it does present itself, it sounds like is, is an important piece of that equation to, to build off that. So another thing I think that is one of the parts of my secret sauce with my success is my, I'm a networking like out of hell. Like I, <laughs> I will, I, I know thousands of people um, across the U S and in different industries you need to network and you need to get out and know people because even again, people that don't have a record, it is so hard to find employment and not just a job now because we need to have careers with the destabilization of our economy and all the stuff that's going on to really diversify yourself in this market, particularly as someone who's a formerly incarcerated person, you need to get to know people. You need to know that judge. You need to know, uh, you know, who runs the admissions. You need to know the secretary and you need to know who runs uh, some construction firm. You need to know people in different industries that are able to help you and guide you and, and point you in the right direction of opportunity. So you might find that lucky moment where you're ready to take on something. Definitely. You are a wealth of information today. I feel like I just well, went through well, seven chapters of something. I don't know. Like I got a <laughs> syllabus in front of me. All right. Well, like we're we're going to four point all you by so, the end of the day. Thank you so very much. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Is there something happening in the community right now that you're in charge of that we need to know about? Or how can the listeners keep yes. up with all the work that you're doing? So, as I mentioned, I'm a professor at U of M Dearborn. We have a group that I started recently called the Criminology and Criminal Justice Collective, which is a student group. However, I invite a lot of people out in the community. I try to have all of my students involved in different um, community activity, experiential learning. Mm-hmm. So, anybody who is formerly incarcerated or, or, or someone that works in these industries, whether it be corrections, law enforcement, judiciary, I'm trying to bring all these things together. I want to have experts in the field. So when my students come out into society, they're better prepared and they really know what's going on. They're not just reading some bullshit textbook. Mm-hmm. They're actually able to 
know physically being in that space of what is going on in the community and, and kind of humanize individuals. I had like Eric came in mm-hmm. to one of my classes. I want uh, to say thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, and I'm, we're, we're editing the video right now. I got to get that on my YouTube channel. But like he was great. He, he did an awesome job talking about and, and, and my students were just so shocked that like um, Eric did almost 20 years in the system again for nonviolent violent for for the 650 lifer law mm-hmm. and he's coming out he, he's articulate he's intelligent he's got an incredible work ethic and he's also on that networking kick like we, we're already like plotting some schemes now for a couple different grants that we're, we're looking at together Sounds how can like we <laughs> how can we build you know something together to to not just help ourselves but also our community so come check us out there uh, if you want to get involved with uh, our, our undergraduate or master's program uh, or just anything where I have trips in the community where I take students to like prisons or county jails or uh, crime labs, whatever it may be. So they're getting that experience, but we always have people who are not necessarily students that are invited as well. For returning citizens that are listening, is there an opportunity to come and maybe speak to the class and share their story? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can email me at atkinzel.com. Uh, at umich.edu, so A-T-K-I-N-Z-E-L at U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. Um, Aaron Kinsley, you can hit me up on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, oh, Snapchat. I'm like all <laughs> over everything. That's another way. Branding myself, putting myself Same out handle on, on those different platforms? Uh, I think a vast majority of them are A-T Kinsel. Gus. A-T-K-N-C-E-L. Gus. Fantastic. Or just Google me and you'll find lots of weird stories. <laughs> Most of the good stuff now. Some of the bad if you go a couple pages in. Right. You got to get that first page Google. That's what everybody wants anyway. Yes. And I'll, I'll include a, a link to some of the articles that you shared. Uh, yeah, that'd well, be great. Those were really fantastic. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, I mean, I just want to say thank you so much again uh, for coming and, and sharing your story. Yeah. And, and being so happy uh, to come here. You guys are both great. And, and you guys are both doing great work. I, On behalf of the other farmers out here, particularly from the Detroit area, we appreciate you guys getting resources out there and kind of like being able to humanize those of us coming home. So thank you both. Absolutely. Definitely. And we'd love to have you again in the future, maybe. Okay. That'd be great. Love to come out. <laughs> thank you. Excellent.